Hello and welcome to Working It with me, Isabel Berwick. Everyone's noticed the cost of living's going up. Train fares are going up. Energy bills are rocketing. I'm even starting to hear people talking about that on the street. And mortgage payments for our homes are going up as interest rates rise. There's a huge sort of concatenation of events that's only going to get harder as 2022 goes on. So today we're asking the question, how is the cost of living crisis affecting workers? And what can or should employers and managers be doing to help offset some of those price hikes? Joining me today are Emma Jacobs, FT Features writer and a Working It regular, and Delphine Strauss, economics correspondent. Welcome both. Hello. So to start off, I wanted to set the scene for listeners. Let's do a big picture. What's happening in the global economy and what impact is that having on prices and the cost of living? Delphine, you're the expert on this. Talking about big economies like the US and the UK, what's going on and how much worse is it going to get? So we were in an incredibly fraught situation across almost all developed economies where we've got inflation at levels that we haven't seen for decades on such a sustained basis. Central banks are trying to stamp on the brakes and tighten policy quite fast to bring inflation down. But that puts both businesses and their staff in a really sort of difficult position. Labour markets have been quite strong over the last year or so. Lots of companies have been struggling to hire. Lots of workers have felt able to put a little bit more pressure on asking for a pay rise. And wages are growing quite fast in nominal terms, but not nearly fast enough to match inflation. On employers' side, a lot of them are quite sympathetic and they're also very keen to keep staff in a difficult hiring market. So they want to make a decent offer. But then again, they're looking at possibly quite a sharp slowdown in demand. Lots of economists are forecasting a recession over the next six months to a year. You know, their costs are rising on all fronts. So some of them are also just feeling very squeezed and unable to offer as much as they'd like. In that kind of environment, we're getting more disputes, more hiring problems, and also just a lot of people trying to look quite carefully at whether there's anything else they can do apart from pay. So our colleague Claire Barrett, who hosts the Money Clinic podcast, points out that UK workers need to get around a 10% pay rise just to stand still in 2022. And that's much higher than we're used to getting. And it's shocking how quickly it's happening. Delphine, what pay rises are people getting at the moment? What's the evidence coming in? People are watching the evidence really closely because it's the big question. And it depends how you count it. So regular earnings are quite sharply below inflation. If you include bonuses as well... Then the latest data shows that up until about April, when energy prices really bounced again, but up until April, total pay with all the bonuses in there was more or less keeping track with inflation. That was quite heavily weighted towards the top end. Bankers probably got a chunk of it, but it wasn't just that. And we are also seeing some big employers now increasingly giving not just kind of lump sum cost of living payments, but also mid-year consolidated pay rises that will actually, you know, help your pension and so on as well. Unite, the union, just managed to negotiate a cost of living increase for some groups of staff at Barclays that's worth about, you know, 5% consolidated. PwC just put in place quite a big pay rise for a lot of its workers that was sort of nearly a double-digit increase. And that too is a consolidated one. All of this is deeply worrying to central bankers who think that probably our pay does need to fall if inflation is going to come down. But there's quite a disparate picture. And that's partly why we're seeing all of these disputes where employers are still trying to hand down a 2% pay rise and no questions, please. It's increasingly not tenable when people look around at what's happening elsewhere. 
And Emma, you talk to a lot of HR managers and corporate leaders in your job. Is there any acknowledgement or expectation that pay and cost of living is a huge issue already? Or do they acknowledge it as part of employee well-being? Because I haven't been aware of that so far. You've just written a big essay about well-being. Did pay and conditions come up in that? Well, I think that it does privately, but not publicly. Once you say it publicly, then you set the expectation that there's going to be pay rises, which is quite difficult. It's not really in HR manager's gift. And there's a lot of focus, I guess, in white collar employers about financial wellness when it comes to money. On the other aspects of well-being, there's all kind of things like gym membership and meditation apps, which we've talked about before, being a kind of nice thing that soothes their employees but doesn't do much to help them eat. And then I guess that large retailers are looking at other issues like discounts for staff to buy food and other items. So I think there is a lot going on privately but not publicly. So some of the supermarkets have reduced prices for their own staff, haven't they? Well, they're doing discounts so you can get money off food. And I think that's always been in place, but a couple of the big supermarkets have made it more generous recently, I think. And there's been quite a lot of this sort of, you know, looking at all of the usual corners of benefit packages and just saying, are we making the most of the tax breaks available? But you quite quickly get to the point that it's only really pay that counts. I wanted to have you both on because you have written a very popular article about the impact of cost of living rises on workers and what some employers are doing to help. So apart from these long-standing things, what sorts of things did you find employers were doing? Delphine, did you find something unusual when you went to report this? Well, I think one of the big new things is that there is now one big trade-off that can be made around home working. Vouchers and, you know, cycle-to-work schemes are all at the margins, but commuting costs are a really big deal. And one of the things employers can do, even if they feel like they haven't got enough money for a good pay deal, is they can allow staff to have more flexibility about how many times a week they come in. And I think that flexibility is now being given for financial reasons as much as for work-life balance reasons. Emma, do you think that's really starting to take off among employers and, and will impact the return to the office as we go into the autumn and winter? Well, I think it's a really difficult time for them because a lot of them want their employees to be in the office. So they're trying to kind of figure out how do we get people back into the office and explain the benefits. And often they have quite long leases on their own offices that was quite a lot of expenditure. And then also understand that this has a hit on their productivity if they're worrying about their finances and also just the whole idea of the commute is pre-pandemic and post-pandemic if we're at post-pandemic stage yet which we're not that people just see it in a very different way it's now a tax on work for people in a way that they didn't really see it before I mean they were obviously they complained about rail fare rises and petrol prices but I think that people really do think is this day in the office worth it to me? And what is the point of being in the office? So I think that employers will have to make a really good case in terms of the costs and what workers will get out of it. And also just there's a whole package around going to the office. You know, it's the meal that you're eating out, a sandwich meal, you know, all these things just make work more expensive. There's a collision of this cost of living crisis with this really quite philosophical change in the way we see work and where we do work. These things have collided in a really sort of unexpected way, I think, Emma. There's lots of 
unforeseen circumstances. I mean, I think even a few months ago, things were quite optimistic and the office was like a kind of place to see your work friends and have serendipitous thoughts and collaborate. And now it's much more about how expensive is this day going to be? Is it worth it to me? People have become much more transactional about the way that they see their work now that they know that they can do it at home, I guess. And I was interested in sort of energy costs. Delphine, these are only going up. I think the government in Britain has ordered some sort of small subsidies for people. But do you think this will mean a winter retreat back to our bedrooms? Because it'll cost a lot to heat our homes. It might actually offset the commuting costs to go to the office. It'll be interesting to see how people make those individual calculations. I'm guessing that officers might be turning down the thermostat a bit as well. So maybe running into the office because it's warmer there won't work as well as it did last winter. Yes, there is a bit of help on offer from the government. Depending on your circumstances, it might actually offset a lot of it in some cases. But I think just given the pressures on all fronts, if you get a cheque through the post from the government in July that's meant to cover your heating bill in October, it might not feel like that when it comes to October. Exactly. So I wanted to talk about some of the reader responses to your article, which was incredibly popular. And I guess the question is beyond pay rises, what should employers be doing and what can we all do? So I wanted to read this one out. Someone's suggesting that more people can and should move outside cities. Growth in the regions offers a much cheaper housing and it's the way to go. Get out of the cities. Work from home should be offered to make that easier. In Wales, Scotland, towns in various counties outside the major conurbations are heaps cheaper than cities. London's middle class is hollowing out to places like Cambridge. It pays off in terms of lower prices for housing and healthier environment. And as always, leading ahead of the curve, Her Majesty the Queen has wisely abandoned gloomy Buckingham (laughs) Palace and moved to exciting and impressive Windsor Castle near the open fields and green pastures. So Emma, we saw a lot of people moving early in the pandemic to get out of cities. Is there going to be a cost of living penalty now that will push people away too? I like the idea that the Queen's a role model for our (laughs) household expenditure or follow her style. Uh, I think it's quite difficult to tell. And I think that London's got very good transport infrastructure. Other cities don't. And I guess commuting to other cities, especially in cars and so on, is expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think looking at the royal example, it's not actually a move very far. So I think quite a lot of people have felt freer to move, but they're usually moving within a region and still within reach of their existing workplace. And it's probably only, you know, IT workers who feel really free to go to the um, beautiful sort of cheap housing in rural Wales. Or Or the beach. Or the beach. (laughs) We've sort of having all of this discussion about whether city centres lose their economies. I saw some figures on that recently that are basically showing that, yes, indeed, there's quite a big hit to city centres. The gains are spread out quite thinly across places that were quite prosperous already, precisely because they're in commuting range. Interesting. So here's one about some of the specific things that employers are doing. The provision of interest-free crisis loans to help with unexpected expenditure is a worthwhile benefit, but it needs careful management. I believe the burden of high interest charges on loans to people with low incomes or who are dependent on benefits is one of the main causes of financial distress. There are many struggling families in the UK who pay hundreds of pounds every month to lenders on loans taken out in the past. It's no wonder they resort to food banks. So Delphine, we talked a little bit about these sort of loans in the article. Do you think this is going to become a a key benefit that employers are offering to try to offset the kind of very high rates that what used to be called doorstep lenders charge to people? There are some employers who are putting in a bit more provision 
in the way of crisis lending for employees who get into difficulties. I think John Lewis is one organisation that's been doing more, but I don't think this is really widely available to large numbers. I don't think it's one of the key things employers are doing, largely because they would be quite wary of taking on that much responsibility. There is more of a trend for employers to offer staff faster access to pay. So rather than being sort of fixed on a monthly pay cycle, using apps that will allow faster access to money as you earn it. And I think there's mixed evidence around those. They can be really helpful. And then they can also put you in a situation where, well, if you were in the red at the end of every month, then having faster access to it isn't ultimately going to solve the fact that you're not earning enough to cover your bills. So I think care is needed. I think some of the financial wellness clinics that people have set up, I mean, it's easy to be cynical and no doubt we have been cynical about them, that they seem like a kind of money meditation (laughs) instead of actually money to help buy things. But I think when people do get into problems with debt, to have somebody go through it and offer clear and partial advice is really helpful. I mean, I spoke to one employer who did offer it and they said that they had a staff member who had taken out multiple loans and couldn't really see a way out of it and they'd helped to streamline it. It didn't take the money problems away, but it helped make it manageable. It also just alleviated a very private, difficult pressure for them. But as Delphine says, not every employer wants to take on that kind of responsibility. Mm. But I think it is true, actually, that the financial advice is, it's not nothing. It is quite helpful. And even just the online tools and budgeting apps can be really useful just to see how your monthly pay breaks down and what the pressures are very clearly visualised. And I think for the employers who are offering this on-demand wages and kind of real-time pay, then having that done twinned with good financial advice is seen as being quite important. Yeah, I think these are really important things as we go into the very expensive autumn and winter of this year. So here's another good reader comment. Cabris and Lever took the approach of building housing next to their factories so their employees could walk to work. Emma, do you think we might see this sort of thing happening again? So I know John Lewis, the British department store chain, is going into building housing on its sites. And I was interested when you wrote your essay recently about nanny employers, which I'll link to in the show notes. Did you find any evidence of sort of retro style paternalistic employer action or was it all mindfulness and menopause? So the essay that I wrote was about the employers being kind of nanny, that in the years leading up to the pandemic, there was an intensification of wellness discussions and benefits such as some white-collar employers are offering on-site psychologists, on-site psychiatrists. Some like Bjorn Borg, the Swedish sports company, takes employers' biological age through a series of fitness tests and puts it in its annual report and encourages, well, doesn't encourage them, it's mandatory to do an exercise class at 11 o'clock on Fridays. So some take quite a big role in their employees' well-being. And then the pandemic intensified its sort of interference would be one way of putting it. I mean, they were zoomed in literally into people's homes so you could see their children and their families. And so there was a kind of corporate intimacy between employees and employers and as we come out of that 
do people actually want to have their employer so intrusive in their lives or do they want it to be more transactional? And one employer in the US had really scaled back his wellness benefits and put more emphasis on pay. And judging by readers' comments, they seem to want just the money. Interesting. So lots of people in the comments, and we see this a lot on social media, are commenting on CEO pay, which is still going up, and the pay differentials with average workers are getting ever more extreme. So Deloitte recently found the median employee to FT FTSE 100 chief executive pay ratio was 1 to 81, and that was 1 to 59 in 2020 and 1 to 75 in 2019. So it's just going up and up. CEOs had a bit of pay restraint in the pandemic and sort of cut their pay as a solidarity thing, but they're back up there now. Median average of £3.6 million a year for a chief executive in the UK. So Delphine, might the cost of living crisis have any impact on persuading or forcing CEOs into taking less pay or perhaps sharing more with their employees or less generous share options? Have you seen any events of this yet? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we've seen a really big bounce back in bonuses driven by the financial sector. So I think there was sort of a lean year in 2021. And then at the start of this year, the bonuses really came back with a vengeance. And as you say, the pay ratios are worsening again. I think the high pay centre has done work on that that shows similar findings to the Deloitte study. Speaking to unions at the moment, they are obviously outraged by some of the chief executive pay they see going through, while, as they see it, their members are being very squeezed. They are very happy to point this out, and they do say that in some cases they might have a dispute going. They draft a press release pointing out the pay rise that the chief executive has just received and then they find that the pay dispute is settled before they need to put the press release out. Someone I think there are some sort of you know, there are people starting to watch this more closely and chief executives starting to feel uncomfortable. Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, got into an awful lot of trouble by calling for pay restraint, with unions coming back saying, you know, why are you not calling for corporate profit restraint? He did then modify that and kind of say, you know, he thought that particularly people at the higher end of the earnings spectrum ought to be showing pay restraint this year and that he'd, you know, generously passed up on his own pay rise. Um, See how many people follow the lead. So we've touched on unions there, which is fascinating. We're already Mm. starting to see strikes. The rail industry and also legal industry, criminal barristers went on strike. Delphine, what role do you think unions are going to be playing in terms of helping workers with their cost of living? It seems to me that we're in a state that is only going to get more fractious. Yes, I think it's bound to be an incredibly fractious year and far more of the pay disputes are likely to sort of get towards industrial action than they have had for a while. It's still true that there aren't that many workplaces in the private sector where unions play a really big role at the moment. It's often either the public sector or sort of quasi-public sector organisations. So strikes are brewing at the moment on the railways, which is essentially still funded by government in some of the sort of legacy ex-monopolies like Royal Mail and the post office. In the private sector, you do see disputes, but perhaps more of them are being settled before they get to the picket lines. One of the big post-pandemic finance headaches for many families is finding and paying for childcare. And we've discussed it before on the podcast, and I'm sure we'll discuss it again. But it seems these systems are broken in the UK and the US, perhaps not so much in Europe. 
And Delphine, there are tax breaks for UK workers for childcare and free hours in nurseries. But are employers starting to help out with costs? Or is it just the sort of tax breaks generally at the moment, which are not massively generous, are they? I don't think it's a generalised thing. I mean, I've been talking to recruitment agencies in Poland over the last week or so where they're doing this huge push to try and get Ukrainian refugees into jobs. And there you're seeing sort of, you know, big industrial employers doing their best to set up housing and set up childcare on site and, you know, get kids into school and all sorts of things. It's not a small job. I don't think we're going to see it in a big way in the UK. I think it's still our problem. I mean, the childcare issue, I think, is not going away, Emma. And one solution that used to be very well relatively popular was on-site nurseries, which were paid for or very heavily subsidised by the employer, which seemed to be incredibly popular about 10 or 15 years ago and then disappeared. Do you think we might see the return of the employer nursery? I don't think in this environment at the moment. I mean, there are some employers that still do it. Goldman Sachs offers a kind of on-site nursery. But I mean, even then, it's very restricted places. I think that our employer schemes like emergency childcare, if you get into crisis, but I don't think we'll be seeing the workplace nursery anytime soon. I mean, there might be kind of ideas around the edges, but I doubt it will be an investment in the workplace nursery. Yeah. In fact, I I did an event this morning and one of the questions was how far should we tolerate people who are looking after their children while working? Is it not at all? (laughs) Well, no, it wasn't because the reality is that a lot of people can't get, for example, after school childcare for their children or they can't pay for it. And I think this is going to become, you know, this might be one way to help the cost of living. It, it, It is to tolerate people whose kids are in the house while they're working at home. I think that even before the pandemic, there were some co-working spaces that were, I mean, in a way, co-ops between usually working mothers that would tolerate a bit of young children in the corner or somebody would have more responsibility while the others looked after them. So these kind of informal arrangements are always being made. I don't know about white collar employers. I kind of think that they might have lost tolerance and want their employees to just get on with the job. I think in some cases there is a sort of feeling that they've had enough and they just want people to work. Yeah. Mm. Thinking sort of slightly imaginatively about how we can offset cost of living rises, side hustles and second jobs have always been a thing among workers, but often people have kept them quite quiet. But the arrival of platforms for sharing skills or selling crafts has changed everything. Are the UK and US governments tracking who's earning what and who's paying tax? A lot of this work used to be cash in hand, didn't it, Delphine? So in the first sort of year or so of the pandemic started, we saw quite a lot of people using their furlough to set up startups, often one form or another of online retail. I think quite a lot of those, you know, people have gone back to their day jobs, although some have succeeded. We've also actually seen quite a big drop in self-employment which is partly about tax enforcement. It's new rules coming in that are supposed to clamp down on fake self-employment. Because of what that's done to the figures, it's a little bit hard to tell what's happening on the ground. I suppose just one other thought on whether side hustles are going to be the right way to top up your income at the moment. Obviously, one of the most popular ones has always been driving for one or other of the ride-hailing apps. That's not necessarily paying so well at the moment, given petrol costs and the cost of getting hold of a decent car. So those days might be over, the sort of glory days of getting a ride in one minute. Well, or, I think, yeah, the servant economy the they servant. keep talking about mm-hmm. being over. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, and perhaps rightly. So, Emma, lots of employers have sort of tolerated side hustles but aren't wild about them, or they might not know they're going on. 
Do you think that's potentially an area where things might change? Have you heard of any companies sort of encouraging side hustles as part of employees' well-being? No. <laughs> I spoke to somebody that was trying the four-day week the other day in kind of a low-wage environment, and we talked about whether people might start using the other days to find another job. And he was quite upset at the idea that all the benefits of having time off would be lost. But I mean, it's so complicated. When I spoke to Arup, who do a seven day a week work pattern, somebody said that one of her side hustles, which was setting up a gift business, being able to spread her work over seven days meant that she could go out at lunchtime and post her gifts. And so in that environment, it seemed to be quite tolerated, even encouraged. I mean, I think it just depends on what impact it has on your day job. What's going to happen next, Delphine? How do you see the rest of the year panning out in terms of cost of living and how that's going to affect us as workers? So in the UK, inflation's still going up. We're expecting it to hit 10, 11% by the autumn. It's really juries out at the moment on whether wages are going to carry on pressing up as well or not. The UK is in a slightly different position from other countries. If you look in the US, you see wage growth is already flattening out and perhaps just sort of the whole situation is a little further ahead. In Europe, inflation may not stay high for as long, but wages have been much lower over the last year and we're still not sure whether wage growth is going to catch up. So I think we've got quite a varied picture. And really the big question now is whether central banks are going to manage to achieve a soft landing or whether a year from now we're going to be talking about a big spike in unemployment. It's all quite depressing. Emma, is there anything positive that could come out of this in terms of how we view our employers, our work, what managers can do? Okay, one little glimmer of hope was that some employers are listening to low-wage staff and thinking more about career progression and how their wages could progress over their career and being much clearer about development. And I think that that is a change in blue-collar work that has happened since the pandemic and may continue. But, I mean, as Delphine said, I mean, a lot depends on whether there's going to be a recession or not. What people in the UK do say is that the labour market should stay tight for quite a while now. Maybe things aren't looking great over the next year or so, but the sort of underlying situation that workers are in shorter supply could last quite some time. And that does put people in a better position where their employers might want to invest in them more. I think that's a really positive thing to end on. It's clearly a really difficult situation. It's going to get worse. But I'm encouraged to know that some employers are offering debt advice, financial advice... And that some people are negotiating better deals themselves and better career progression. These are things that haven't really been thought about for a long time. The idea of how we work and what we do is being revisited in every aspect. And perhaps the cost of living crisis will push managers. And we should all be thinking about how we can make work better for people in all aspects, not just pay, but also in all the benefits that we see in work and the well-being that gives us. But ultimately, if you can't pay for your food, you're really going to have a very difficult autumn so I imagine a lot more of us will be in our bedrooms again and the big return to office I think will be stalled in the big economies I can't see any other way forward so sorry employers you're going to have to be offering more than free coffee 
to get people back on those trains. Thanks to Emma Jacobs and Delphine Strauss for this episode. And please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. We're at workingit at ft.com or with me at Isabel Berrick on Twitter. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're an FT subscriber, please sign up for our Working It newsletter. We've got behind-the-scenes extras from the podcast and work and career stories you won't find anywhere else. Sign up at ft.com forward slash newsletters. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. Thanks to the producer Anna Sinfield, executive producer Joe Wheeler, production assistants from Lee Mayer and Amalia Sortland, and mix from Chris O'Shaughnessy. From the FT, we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan and Manuela Saragossa, and production support from Persis Love. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.